Before we get started, it would be hard for me not to take a shot at Alex, whose need to have order in his world is certainly offset by significant executive functioning problems. <laughs> well, unfortunately, he won't be with us this week. What was he doing? He was hauling something? The great irony of Alex is he likes putting everything in boxes, organizing his studio, fidgeting, making sure that, like, download files, get a name replacement by AI, like all this kind of toolmaker tool stuff. And then he seemingly can't organize like home services at the right time so that we can record a podcast. <laughs> I joked earlier this week in, in a newsletter that these end of the year posts, roundups, trends, storylines, predictions, they're all basically the same play. You just like dress it up differently. Reflections. Reflections, reflections yes, looking reflections. back, looking forward. But then looking forward, you look back to look forward, et cetera. To me, the, the big headline for me this year, all these things are always accelerations, I feel like, but that mass media is in terminal decline and that what replaces mass media are going to be individuals and individual-led brands that will fill the void in this chaotic information space. And I think a lot of the weaknesses that were papered over in the post-pandemic just became incredibly, couldn't avoid them this year for a lot of institutional media brands. Did you see that? Couldn't avoid what? You can't avoid the reality that Everyone thinks that mass media is like going to be here forever, but I don't understand why. Like it, it doesn't, it made sense for a brief period of human history, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be around forever. Well, it's a kind of me at, me medium is the message thing always, right? Every, it all goes back to that, right? Like mass media is a function of the distribution structure and the distribution structure moving from one to the next takes time because there's massive sort of industrial monetization implications, et cetera. And everything that we're going through now is really an extension of a long transition in media, I would argue, because really what, when you think about Brian, like just going back to the sort of ad tech, me media always needs the, there's the media box, the things we make to engage people. And then there's the monetization box. And we spent what, 15 years building creating a capability to instantly value attention and auction it off. That's what the ad tech ecosystem did. And it was remarkable, really, that you could arrive at a site, I could take that information, look at who you are, use some sundry group of signals, and say, I want that person or I don't, and bid on you. And that was programmatic advertising. But, you know, the form factor was basically originally a real kind of descendant of the previous media monetization structure where you put boxes next to content, right? And then we thought, well, let's put links inside of content, right? There's better ways to do this. And now we're finding that that whole structure of media brands to feeds of content from a media brand and then an underlying monetization mechanism, primarily of display advertising, particularly on tax, kind of, it feels outdated. And yeah. now we're trying to figure out what the next one is. And, and as soon as that kind of comes apart, the, whole, the economics of industrial media have started to come apart. 
And that's what's forcing this different structure where independents have more opportunity, I suppose. There are different types of, obviously, subscription-based media or media that is sort of institutionalized like the New York Times and have scale that have done well. But outside of that, all of those businesses that exist to aggressively compete with one another inside of a third-party distribution mechanism are on terminal decline. I agree. Yeah. And that distribution is key because the platforms have really cut off publishers at the knees. I mean, this has been an ongoing story, but I, I forget it. I hate those things on Twitter when you find like some nugget, I guess X now. I'll just go with X. And then you, I don't remember who it came from. So I'm like stealing it, but I, it's just because it's chaotic. But anyway, they posted a, a Comscore chart that was comparing digital audience in November 2023 from a year earlier. The numbers are like amazing. Vox down 17%, CNN down 20%, New York Times down 29%. Insider down 22%, Wall Street Journal down 16%, Politico down 35%. Then you have Forbes up 17%, 17.6%. So they found some seed. So there, there is still hope out there. We got a <laughs> Forbes found something to increase its comm score. <laughs> right? Well, Forbes, it's no, Forbes didn't really, I don't think that came from the traditional media part of Forbes, a big part of that was them opening up the marketplace business, which competes in a number of verticals from finance to insurance to home. To, to home oh, does that get rolled up in their comm score, the, the well, advisor I'm sure. business? Yeah, I'm sure. And, and it's, a lot, it's a lot of traffic and a lot of page views. Okay. So basically, I mean, that kind of says the story though, right, too? I mean, setting up a side operation that's very commerce focused, it's more like a red No, qual the quality is very high. There is an independent editorial organization. It's like a big group of people and it's opened up a real neck kind of new pillar in their yeah. content feed. It's just, it's putting the Forbes brand on something that exists, that would exist. I know commerce content, I, I honor all monetization, Troy, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, like we've seen outsourcing some commerce content, you're basically just taking not the same. brand it's not the and same licensing it to someone else who's really good at being a traffic monster for stuff that has nothing to do with Forbes. I would say that the key part of their success is making good content. So you should just be careful with how you're just entirely dismissive of <laughs> okay. the efforts of lots of people. I mean, you know, and I just I don't something to think about. I, okay, it's true. It is. It is the end of the year. I, I would. Yeah, let's. I'll roll. Get the gener generosity up a bit here. Yeah. <laughs> I, but, I was trying but, but, to compliment Forbes. Look, they're up when everyone else is down. That that's a it's a good thing. Yeah, I had a conversation about it with a friend of mine who I love, and I got to see this morning, Kay Lewis. We were talking about the challenge of basically paying for long form. And I just bring two quick thoughts together, long form journalism or essays or point of view content or whatever. And I'll put two or three things together just quickly. One is last week I embarked on an experiment because of Alex. And Alex has got this unique way of consuming media that has no time for the fluff that holds together a bunch of points in an article. So he'd prefer to summarize everything or just get the yeah. bullets or... and augmented by his love of podcasts he listens to an endless number of them seemingly and then so so basically what i did is i had this list of long form essays that i get in this newsletter that are all worth 
time at the end of the week. And instead of reading them or reading a select number of them, I fed them into perplexity. And I asked for summaries in different ways, 10 bullet points, just the key facts, the key arguments, whatever, just try to find a formula for pulling out an abstract that made sense to me. And what I found is I was able to move through a huge number of articles in very little time. And it was really efficient. And I, I said this to Kate and she said, well, you know, I enjoy reading a long article because it's not just about the facts. And I said, you know, often I'll read something like that very <laughs> 17,000 word Bennett essay about the, oh, you know, that was too long. The, the rot inside of the New York Times. And I end up walking away remembering very little of it. So the, just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing was an interesting experiment. And then what I also but let me ask you this. Let me just jump in. Do you think you would have felt that way like 10 years ago? A lot of this has changed our brains. And I don't think that the human brain has meant is meant to be able to try to ingest all of this content and information and, and chaos at once. And so we're clearly losing attention. Yeah, it was much more leisurely then, right? And Kate and I also talked about this is that you would do a couple long pieces in a magazine combined with short front of book stuff with just like a whole bunch of formats in a single publication and your ability to pull all those together and monetize that cure curated package thing was what made newspapers and magazines work now it's been all atomized or fragmented and really there's no way to pay for long journalism it's just extremely difficult to pay for it and at the same time, there's is, is that a demand that, problem? Has the demand gone down, or is it just a market failure in that the ways that you were able to? I pay think it's for two it. things. On the supply side, you can't bundle and therefore monetize the whole package. On the demand side, there's and this is the more interesting question. There's new ways to get information that break journalistic or editorial conventions about how you package content and. I think that's the more interesting one. Like, do we really need story formats like you typically see in newspapers or magazines when three bullet points will do? And we're living in the, the information space as you describe it, where there's so many other things that, so many other ways of packaging information and so many other ways to get all kinds of information. So you just want bullet points? Like you well, I, I don't think it's just bullet points. I mean, I think you hear lots of different things. You hear, I get more and more in my, of my content from podcasts. I get my news from TikTok. It's just, it's completely different. You can't just look, Brian, at the changes in media as you do. You make the point repeatedly, and I like it, that we're seeing the shift from sort of institutional to individualized media creation. And I think that's one piece of it. Right. But there's a bunch of other pieces that are at play here. And it's, there's a lot more information. There's better tools to sort through that information. There is an ability to, to channel narrow interests much more effectively. There's a lot of things at play, the video, audio, right? And all of that is creating something that I don't think we have a name for, or we, we don't have a clear mental model for what modern media looks like. I, I fail at describing it, and I just call it the meat grinder. <laughs> the meat grinder. The sharp end of the meat grinder is the search results page. It's always been the workhorse of 
digital media because distribution and interface controls it. And Google has been the gatekeeper and search has gone through a profound change this year. And I think concerned about it. When we look back on all of the changes that have gone on, yeah, this is going to be the number one. That's why I think when people were talking about AI, it was always going to the creation and all it's like, whoa, whoa, go to distribution first, because the creation doesn't matter if you don't have distribution. It doesn't matter if a robot's making it or a human. I understand why reporters and writers, people like me, want to go there first, but it seems better to start with the distribution. And yeah, yeah. It's the end I of remember the Neil Vogel saying to me at Dot Dash Meredith, and he was like, sure, I'm dependent on an algorithm, but this is the most dependable algorithm. It's dependable. It's mm-hmm. been around for so long. It's, well, guess what? It just got a lot less dependable. I saw him this week. He's, oh, yeah. he's super smart, but he's a book talker. So he, he's an optimist, and that means that you represent your reality in positive ways. Now, let's talk about it. The end of the SERP is nigh, and we can start to see what the new SERP looks like. And there, I call it the new SERP. And you are seeing it with OpenAI. You're definitely seeing it with perplexity. You're starting to, you're seeing it with Bing. And I suspect soon you're going to see it with Apple. But the reason that I single out the Apple one is because the Apple one is distribution plus the SERP, right? It's like the next level of distribution because it's in your pocket. They own the iOS, all that. So if you took perplexity, and as a reminder, we've talked about perplexity a couple times, what's interesting about it is it's the connection between a search index and an LLM, okay? And what's going on in there is you ask it anything, anything that's, that's current, and it'll go out and look at it on the web and grab that index and interpret it with the LLM and deliver you back a text-based response, it will add images, it will suggest subsequent queries, and it'll show three or four sources at the top. So it's a lot like what you would see in the Google results if they were unencumbered by paid links and more dependent on an LLM. Because it's subscription, it's 20 bucks a month, there's none of the other nonsense in there. And so it very much looks Wait, like. Can the you future. define the, the nonsense in there? I thought you were just like singing the praises of the nonsense when I, I well, the, the, dared, <laughs> I dared to besmirch the nonsense earlier. Well, the nonsense rewind. is I'm talking about it purely from a kind of give me the stuff straight to the vein consumer point of view. The nonsense makes businesses function. Well, that's right? what Forbes is up 17% on the nonsense, isn't it? Let's, this isn't about Forbes, my dear. <laughs> let's, let's move on. So I'm going to uh, have to adopt a subscription model. <laughs> That's clear. Okay, so a couple Google's implications here. <laughs> so is there a window for Apple to compete with Google in a more meaningful way and forfeit the $27 billion that they're paid and they're held hostage yeah. by Google? Could so this Apple, is going to finally be the way for Apple to compete well, listen, with Google. Perplexity built a better product than Google. And they've done it in the what the last eighteen months or so. So we remind what? me in perplexity. They there was this one some faction that split off over who are these? It people? was one, I, mean, I don't know one of the Deep Mind guys or something. I, okay. I don't know. It's part there's this cabal of brilliant AI people that start companies and seemingly yeah. With I high, just want to know whose side I'm supposed to be on. I don't know. Let's talk a little bit more about it. You can decide. So there's the new SERP is coming. We don't know what it'll do for sure it has less room for a lot of people to compete to get get clicks 
it means that a new ad model is required. Remember, the creation of the search monetization ad model was the great kind of colonizer of the open web, right? Like that was a huge moment. They figured out a way to monetize search. And it used to that, be the least valuable pages dude, on the internet. People don't I took a Waymo the other day and I realized that that ad product was accountable for Waymo. Okay. Truth. Very, very tight connection between Waymo and search ads. Because Google made so much money because of the sort of liquidity and effectiveness of their ad model. They had a money printing machine. They had a money printing machine. They literally made so much money that they had to hide profits. Yeah. Or like they had shuffle to hire them all those people too. Hire cafeteria. Free crab legs, lots of people, crab legs, <laughs> dry cleaning, and you know, moonshots, right? Moonshots, like balloons that offered Wi-Fi to Sub-Saharan Africa, oh, yeah. like Google Glasses, and like Waymo. And you get into a Waymo and you're like, holy shit, who paid to develop this thing? Because it's crazy the amount of work that went into making this. Everyone bidding on that mesothemia keyword. Yeah. (laughs) So that gave us Waymo. In AI SERPs, there's fewer opportunities for paid link competition. So the. But it's it's a cul de sac, is it not? I mean, at the end of the day. When it's a cul de sac, you can monetize it. It's just the monetization looks different. We don't know what it looks like yet, but, but less traffic is going to go. So if you have a if you have a model, if you're a publisher, you have a model based on traffic, and most legacy most legacy publishing businesses at oh, some that, level, the, the, that that gig is up. That gig is up. So we're assuming that gig is. Is it the gig is up or the jig is up? Let's you say so, tomato. It's, okay. <laughs> so what's interesting inside of Google? I'm yeah. sure it's chaotic. There's like a million analysts analyzing what the f- new SERP looks like in terms of potential monetization against the new product of the old SERP. They rushed out these new models. Like it's chaos there. I talked to people that sat inside of the demos of Gemini and they said that Google is in a real state of disarray. Like it, it feels chaotic. And but that's a side note. So what's I think the interesting tension inside of this SERP question is this. Competition will reduce traffic to Google, right? Remember now they're over 90% market share. They've gotta, there's gotta be something that, that that starts to challenge that. But what they can do uniquely is they can take with the LLM search SERP, they can take a larger share of experience, right? Just like they've done for years and they had to apologize for it every time. Oh, they added maps. Sorry, MapQuest. Oh, they added shopping. Sorry, Shopzilla. Oh, they added like travel search. Thank you, Barry Diller. Oh, they added weather. On and on and on and on and on. And now more of the experience, more and more of the experience of the open web gets sucked into this new interface that Google controls. They create a new ad model to monetize that, which will be different than paid search, but the same kind of spirit of it, I suspect. And so they manage reduced traffic like an aging monopolist by flexing their muscles and absorbing more of the open web. And I don't know whether to short Google or not, but they enjoy massive advantages all the way from the chips to the models to data from the likes of YouTube and all the other touch points they have for years and devices. 
So they have this whole continuum of stuff, right? That's kind of future proofs of the business. But the one thing where they make like 60% of their total revenue, it's 77% advertising, but 60% of it is the SERP and it's wickedly high margin. It pays for Waymos. That one's going to go through a period of disruption. And how long will it take? What will happen in 24? Not sure. Okay, not sure. This, uh, that's the point of the episode. You got to tell, tell us sure. what's going to happen. Okay, well, that, that actually leads into the, the second thing that I learned and that I'm going to be looking at next year. Oh, can I add one other point on this? Yeah. These are not predictions as much as they are questions. One of the things in my mind is I've been spending a little bit of time in this sort of app underbelly, the app economy. And it's not something that you or I think about that much. We more think about the kind of open web economy. Yeah. Now, the app economy has got its own tactics and the people that know how to game the app stores and how to slide offers in front of consumers to squeeze money out of those apps and all that kind of stuff. Now, the question with AI as interface is what happens to the app economy? Because a lot of the utility embodied in apps are like singular offerings of utility, right? Like get the weather, get the, get yeah. the compass app, get the They're Uber slightly better app. web pages, aren't they? Well, yeah, materially better, but, but I, well, I, they're accomplishing a job that web pages used to do. Right, but you know, going to Uber on the web certainly isn't a thing because the apps have notifications, the apps have access yeah. to the metal of the phone. Like, there's lots of reasons yeah, apps are. Great. They're the successor to the web page. Right, except that what happens to the app economy when it too gets hijacked by AI interfaces, and when you start to use AI more and more as the default interface point on your phone, do you need all those apps? Probably not. You no, probably don't need many of them. Apps were always a hack. Who wants the, the scrolling through screens on your phone to try to find the app you want? Because you only have like the first screen. Most people, what, you don't want to go to the second. What's your favorite app? Like some stupid running thing? No, I mean like Instagram or something basic. But. Oh, you're a big Instagrammer. I notice that you walk around yeah. New York City filming everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> <Cute>. <laughs> no, I'm not into like particular, you know, utility apps, news apps, that kind of stuff. But then I hate going through to, okay, if like I use Toro once, do I really want to go and try to find the like Toro app on like screen seven? They're just hacks. You know what I mean? Like they made sense and they were revolutionary at a time. And I just feel like we always think things are going to continue as is. Even the people in like these disruptive, bleeding edge, whatever fields, seem to always think that everything is going to stay the same for them, but just change for other people. It's like, boo-hoo, the app people are going to get whacked. Jesus. I don't know, publishers have been getting whacked for like a generation? At least they're used to, at least they're sort of trained. So Yeah, we should maybe introduce a new segment. It's reality talk <laughs> with, with Brian. Let's get real. Look, it's, I don't know, it's too bad, so sad. But I wonder if this is going to lead to a new bargain between the tech platforms and publishers, because it's untenable, right? I mean, this it was always like an unhappy bargain, at least on the publisher side, right? But it, it broadly worked. You know, right. As, well, uh, so we're on, to, we're on to the next one here. That actually is a great segue. Yeah, that's what I was You know saying. what it is? It's the new syndication. We got the new SERP and we got the new syndication. I love it how the market reacts. And I did this. Like when we see a glimmer of hope as a publisher in the future because Axel Springer did a deal with OpenAI. 
Okay, so just as a reminder, two dimensions to that deal as I understand it. One is they're going to train their models on Axel Springer's content from Insider, Politico, on a morning brew, whatever else they are. And they're going to return snippets from their stories in AI queries. And in return, they're going to offer Axel Springer, I presume, an annual payout of millions of dollars. And so this Seven is... figures, supposedly. Okay, so that's real. But you know, it's sort of like buy one, get one at the crack store. And it usually only leads to dependency and broken hearts and addiction. What happened to the spirit of generosity? Well, let's just keep on this new syndication thing because play it out. We used to make millions of dollars from MSN in a model that was not that different, except that they would take our content. We set up a feed mechanism to give it to them in this granular way that they wanted it. So we had hundreds of titles or 24 brands, spit them out content by category, beauty, fitness, celebrity news, etc. They would put mm. it through the MSN meat grinder. They would pay us a fraction of what one might have thought that you would get off a story, but it was on the margin. It was terrific. And we did literally so many page views because MSN was on the start page of every PC that People don't go to MSN because they love it. They go there because it's part of the operating <laughs> <Really>? system. <laughs> so we would make millions of dollars from that at Hearst. And so this is the same, except that it's all part of the back to the Kate Troy conversation, which was there's no brand value in those snippets that we're returning. We're journalists, not snippet makers. There's no brand value. There's no curatorial value. We don't own the package. Monetization requires curation and packaging and the differentiating power of a brand. And so it's just further fragmentation. It's like syndication plus. And it, we used to trade link revenue. We're just trading link revenue from Google for LLM revenue. And I guess in some way it's like Disney selling shows to Netflix. But Every feel, single publisher will scramble to get that deal if the money's okay. Everybody will want to get the deal. <laughs> Straight to the bottom line. But it doesn't change anything about the fact that you're dependent on horizontal applications. Your market power is de minimis, and you probably have a slightly more diversified but inadequate revenue stream to fund your newsroom. <laughs> okay, so that, that doesn't sound very positive. <laughs> I don't know where you got that this is all, this is happy hour. Usually people at the beginning of the year, maybe it's not what they want, but it's what they need. Well, let's look for the silver lining. Let's say that the only people that get the LLM deals are big, well-funded media companies. So there's not, there's not an infinite number of LLM deals to go around. No. Right? So maybe it returns media, which it used to be, to an oligopolistic kind of industrial structure that used to exist when there were like three big magazine companies and the like. So only the big guys can do deals with LLMs. They have the scale and negotiating power and et cetera to get meaningful revenue out of those new interface points. But I would ask you just to back up and at the end of the day, if you're feeding an experience where a robot is making text and surfacing snippets, how good a business of that is in the long term? You know, if you're a cultural media entity, how good a business is that? And I would say it's maybe, it's okay on the margin, but it's not, not a great business. Yeah, I mean, no, it's not going to be a great business. But what are the options? So I, what, I think what's interesting about the Axel Springer deal is 
the paywalled content, right? All of the incentives are going to just accelerate the demise of the open web as a thing. Like it's just going to be paywall after paywall after paywall. The incentive structure no longer exists if you're creating differentiated, high quality, quote unquote, premium content to allow it to be crawled and to exist on the open web. There, there isn't, there isn't an economic underpinning to that content living on web pages, is there? And like no. making it for like programmatic advertising? No, it's it's not going to work. Is it? Am I missing something? I thought we already solved this. Did we? And, yeah, I don't think they. Like I said, I mean, if you want to be optimistic, think that the new interface points will be controlled by a small number of large media companies, and that might be an okay way to pay for journalists. So you think that this will benefit larger media companies? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then everybody else gets sucked up in a indexing of the open web for which they will never derive economic benefit. So will that lead to what? Just because like I would think no, that fewer, more passion based publishing, more video, more audio, blah blah blah. But the LLMs are coming for that too. It always starts with text, but then it goes to the more lucrative. The LLMs <laughs> are coming. They are coming. They're coming for the video. Yeah. I actually like ChatGPT. I use I use ChatGPT just to make. I don't use Midjourney anymore. I, I use it to make images. They're just as good now. I've used it. Yeah, you've really taken. I mean, no offense, but my my bear formula and applied it to the astronaut to really good effect. Like the, the freaking LLM. I don't know. It's like. Well, the formula is find a character and apply character to different scenarios to support your story. Oh, okay. I put them in a classroom. And it's the last thing. Anytime we used to have, we didn't have like art directors or whatever. Well, we did, but they were working on other stuff. And so like anytime with the story art, it was like, it was the last thing that was ever done. I love <laughs> it often art. was treated that way. <laughs> what else do you have on your docket? I feel like we did an okay job of covering that stuff. Well, I had a couple of, it might not totally fit in this. I think one of the things is that many of the, the geniuses that, that were among us were zero interest rate phenomenons. And I think that it'll be pretty interesting to see in 2024 because I think one of my big takeaways from this year is there are so many people trying to use the playbooks of the past for a totally different era. And I understand that, but it, it seems to be a very short-term strategy for a lot of publishers to try to use what worked in the past for a time when it's not working. I mean, when I talk about publishers, I'm often like hear some variation on the stuff that used to work doesn't work anymore. And so I think it'll be interesting to see who comes up with new models in 2024. I think models that are smaller, I'm more biased towards that. But even what I see like with what like a punch bowl has done in a short period of time in a really difficult market, to me, we're going to have more punch bowls. We're going to have fewer BuzzFeeds. So I think that's going to be good. I think that'll be an interesting development in some ways. Yeah, I agree. Actually, let's move to it. I'm interested in where the ongoing culture wars go. Because I feel like media has been caught up very squarely in these culture wars, whether it's like tech versus the media or whether, obviously, with the election going on uh, next year, it's going to be front and center. Everyone references the loss of trust. And I think it was this week or was it last week? Last week, James Bennett 
former New York Times editorial page editor who got defenestrated, to use a puck term, after he published a Tom Cotton op-ed calling for some sort of form of martial law, troops in the street. He wrote an exceedingly long piece in The Economist and really kind of torched his former employer. Did, did you make your way through the whole thing? I skimmed it, yes. <laughs> he skimmed it. Mm-hmm. Did you put it in perplexity? Mm-hmm. What did perplexity say? I broke it down, 10 points. I think the most salient point was that the Times, in some ways, had become a bit of a caricature of itself. And like I read the Times every day. It is it is one of my apps on my first screen. I think it's amazing what they've done as a business. I think the cost of that pivot to subscriptions has been inevitably you become more customer focused. And when you become more customer focused, you you start to reinforce the the viewpoints of your customers. And I think that was basically what I took away from from Bennett's many, many, many words. Yeah. Listen, I have to, it's full disclosure. I look at this pretty personally, to be honest. So I think that the Times creates a product for their audience, their paying audience, and that's got a kind of liberal mindset. And I think that's perfectly fine. I think that at worst, what you get is writing from the headline and a conclusion back and contorting the story and the facts to to support a point of view that blocks you from seeing or even entertaining the other side or another perspective on the story. And I think that the right in America has become so distasteful to many on the left or even in the center that it wasn't even worth kind of interrogating any of those ideas. And then you have a time early in COVID, and, and, and this it's, it's kind of a visceral, emotional memory for me, because in the wake of Black Lives Matter, every organization, from I would say from media to anybody that said, oh my God, we don't have a DEI function, scrambled to, to change their organizations to meet real or perceived threats from their employee base, from journalists, from people that were holding them accountable for that. And I think the New York Times definitely got caught up in that. I say it because I was basically assaulted by them. They had a story they wanted to write about challenging time at Hearst and a battle with the unions and the stuff. And I was inside of that story. And so I think that at another time, in another place, another environment, this is just me talking about it personally. It's hard not to do that, as I said that story might have been reported a little bit more carefully with more than one perspective of what was really going on. And it wasn't. And yeah. it changed my my life, for better or worse. And it certainly gave me a perspective on how the New York Times at that time was, and Ben Smith and the other woman that wrote it with him were going after a very, very particular headline. You know, I look at it like that, but I do think that, that Bennett, probably is bitter about how his path in the New York Times was cut short and that he saw a company that was probably veering off the rails a bit. I think much of that has changed now. And I really don't think today you can say that the New York Times serves their liberal audience any differently than the Wall Street Journal serves a right-wing audience. Eh, I don't know. From the news, maybe. I, I would say it is a little, it's it's still 
sort of preaching to the choir. But a lot of that is just cultural, really internal culture. I think a lot of times people outside of news organizations think there's some sort of dictate or something, but usually it's just, it's based on like personnel's policy and it's it's hiring. And like once, once things get in the, it's just self-reinforcing, right? At that time when you went through the ringer, that was a time that in any news organization, everyone wanted to have the story. We spoke to 23 people, everyone. I saw it, I edited these stories. At a yeah, 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 right, right. About digital trends. I mean, like digital trends. Like, I mean, why? Like, totally. Again, there was a group of journalists and, and outlets that loved those stories for sure, including The Insider, including New York Magazine. And the union narrative or backdrop or what was a really, really important part of it. And there was a story that, a gotcha story that was, was delicious. So, but you know, the bigger story in any of these organizations is navigating massive change, letting a lot of people who were heretofore comfortable in these jobs go from the organization. So the person that had to lead a group of young, we're talking to Kate about this today, the, the difficulty in digital media in making money and driving the machine meant that a lot of pressure got put on editorial teams to just relentlessly produce. And I, I would say that the union response, though generational, was very much the result of a group of people that were paid very little and asked to work extremely hard and that was a big part of the whole thing so you can't interview 20 people when you the organization has 3,000 oh. people in it and you're not looking to talk to the people the people that at that time very important brian at that time to say oh my god i support this person he was great she was great was like throwing yourself into the story in a way that you were going to be assaulted there was no environment where the people that said good things felt comfortable saying good things because that wasn't the environment. It was an environment of fear, pure and simple. Do you think that's ending? I mean, there's definitely been like well, a reaction to you, it. You, you know, I didn't want to talk about this that much, to be honest. And do I think it's ending? I think yes. But if you're me, you're still a little bit bitter about it because you forever have an article associated with your name that changes the risk profile of hiring or working with someone. And uh, well, the good you know, news is search result pages are going away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm trying, trying to spin this positively going into the new year. Right. You'll but be okay. Anyway, it'll be okay. No, I think there was like a weird fever that went on. And I know a lot of people will, will again, there's justifications and, and, but I think we're seeing with what's going on right now, it's it's reached a logical conclusion where it's like, this is impossible. This has become a circular firing squad. <laughs> and all of the inconsistencies and yeah, when you see this in the New York Times, I think now they have a they have a new caucus within their union that is like fighting against the union, taking stands on the Israel Hamas war. And so these things always just sort of to me, every revolution ends up like fizzling to some degree because uh, it just becomes untenable. Basically. Well, and in m many revolutions, the oppressed want to take something from the oppressors. Okay. And the, one of the problems with the, the revolution in kind of unionization in media is that those companies are, are under such strain that it's a battle fought against 
someone who has no kind of choice but to massively rationalize and change their companies, where the union wants job growth, compensation growth, security, and all of that. I mean, I feel for Roger at Condé Nast, like they've taken the battle to the bathrooms. They're putting posters up, you know, know where's Roger? And like charging his office and saying, you can't let people go. But at the same time, like that's a company that really hasn't materially made money in a decade. Yeah. I Mark Stenberg had asked me from Adweek if they're like Reddit, you know, stake, if that will like then change their decisions about how many people they're going to let go. I'm like, no, I mean, that is nothing to yeah, these businesses, the way they work, well, they're not what working. kind of question that that's just they're not naive. working. That's like naive. and and they you know, you gotta make those kind of changes. That's why I think these jobs are terrible are kind of bad jobs now. I mean, look, I don't feel still highly paid and whatnot, but at the same time. There's a lot of grief to a lot of these jobs because in some ways, to me, like you're a steward of declining assets and that, that's not as fun. Yeah, I mean, someone had asked me the same, Brian, about what would you, you even asked me this, what would you have done differently? I sort of compared Condé to Hearst and if you looked over, say, a 10 or 15 year horizon, Condé has arguably better products in, and brands in the categories in which they compete, like in fashion, they have Vogue, Hearst, Dizel, and Bazaar, AD versus other stuff that in the Hearst portfolio, GQ versus Esquire. Conde has good products. But over that long horizon, 15, 10, 15 years, Hearst has pulled billions of dollars out of the market in profits, and Conde has not. And now we sit at a place where there's a new start, call it now. And you have to ask yourself, like, through their investment in their products, but you know, however critically you want to look at that, did Condé Nast invest that money in the enterprise in a way that's going to help it make more money in the future? And I think that's hard to say yes to. So basically, a lot of money was reinvested, and it never made the enterprise more competitive, nimble, future ready, etc. They invested in video, and that cost tons of money and never did anything. And they invested in commerce, and that cost tons of money and never did anything. They've admirably invested in things like Metball and continued the franchises like Vanity Fairs, Oscar Party, and all that. But those are tiny parts of the, the whole media equation. And so I, I think it's interesting. Probably what you would have had to do is go in and just aggressively divest brands, cut costs, you know, license the brand, focus on affiliate commerce, like do way more in active. I mean, just stuff that... that, I think what's interesting to me is they have done elements of all of the things that people do. They've done elements of commerce. They did the video. They did the IP. You know what I mean? It's almost like Mad Libs and everyone has some sort of version of it, right? But it's, it's all about execution. And like, I think Teen Vogue, right? Like, why was that even a thing? Why in the world? I just think when you look back, when you think about the structural challenges to these businesses, nothing against Teen Vogue or the legacy of Teen Vogue or whatever, but it became this oppositional anti-Trump Teen Vogue. And then it became, there was like a scandal with a new editor and stuff like this and her, her high school tweets and stuff like this. He should have taken it out back and like put it out of its misery. You gotta be kidding me. Teen Vogue? Can you imagine sitting there and having these meetings about Teen Vogue? The whole how it's like whatever is that meme is like this is fine. The whole thing's on fire. And you're like, are we really having this meeting about Teen Vogue? I think that's a great point. That's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> is so you would have had to get much more gangster on your portfolio. 
I mean, I would guess so. I mean, it's, so the thing is, it doesn't do you any good anyway. You, you still got the fight being taken to the bathroom stalls. You're still getting marched on your office. You might as well. But now I feel like that has, has changed. And a lot of these changes come from Silicon Valley. And that's given a lot of cover to what Elon Musk has done and what a lot of the companies there have, have now followed suit with cutting tons of people. Media, I think I saw they cut like 20,000 jobs this year. That's by one estimate. Unfortunately, I think that's going to continue next year. These organizations are probably going to have to get smaller, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that seems to be the theme of what we've talked about. But let's get optimistic, as you, you, you seem it. to want to end the year on an on an upbeat note. We can. So, new SERP, new SERP is interesting because it's just going to create tons of opportunities for people that figure out how to get in there, and whether they're media brands where their kind of provenance and structure is preserved inside of the new interface, whether it's commercial entities that figure out what the new SEO, SEM game is inside of the LLM, whether it's app, you know, nascent or upcoming companies like that used to dominate in apps or new types of apps that can exist in an AI powered world. There is a huge amount of opportunity for innovation because the interface of the web and the phone is about to go through a major transition. So that's exciting, and I think optimistic. Do you think you can still build brands off of indirect audiences? I mean, audiences I th- you don't control. I think that you can always build brands. I just think that the surface area in which you do it changes materially, and it may not be by writing long articles. So yeah, of course you can build brands. You built a brand without. No, no, but what certain. I mean is, I did a podcast with uh, Bridget Williams from Hearst newspaper. Mm-hmm. Set. I like Bridget. Yeah. Yeah, she's smart. And she yeah. and Bridget was talking about controllable audiences and like just shifting yeah. the focus to controllable because like there's so much out of your control as publishers and now at this point it's completely out of our control and to me like it's it sounds all great controllable audiences but that just means you're just going to be way smaller because these brands are built I mean you look at the numbers with those declining traffic they're built off of search and social. It makes me think of so many things. I think that's a great term, Bridget, like controllable audiences makes a lot of sense. And I think that it is probably a smaller business because the whole promise of search and social driven internet publishing was that you could reach beyond your the boundaries that had it existed in a physical world, whether you were a women's magazine that could move from a narrow provenance to be celebrity, to be all things across a much larger space like Cosmo was a certain type of publication and it could be now it could compete with an entertainment publication or a gossip magazine or whatever. So they all broadened their horizons. And now the world is saying you need meaningful direct relationships in this controlled audience concept, which is smaller. The problem, one of the things that that makes you think, and it's just won't spend too much time here, but the, is that in, in local newspapers, you would think that in the, the local news business that there's a lot of interested participants in the ecosystem that really want content from you. And I think that's partially true, but I think the, the flip side of it is monetizing that outside of subscriptions is really difficult. And I think that there's a whole generation, first of all, selling to small businesses is, is, is really expensive. Selling to unsophisticated small businesses in the digital products is very difficult. And they also, all of those businesses now have 
the new tools of Meta and Google that they can use to do performance-based advertising. I think that managing a performance-based advertising stack is very difficult for any media company because it demands a huge amount of sophistication and technology to actually make it work. So as the world has shifted to... You know, yeah, and that's where the entire market has shifted to, to performance. Well, performance, machine learning, massive amounts of data to power these very sophisticated self-serve systems. Like, it's really hard for local media to, to pull the economics out of that. While there may be an audience for their content, I think that that's just the reality is that monetizing it via subscriptions and advertising is, is just going to be a challenging business. But that's, come on, you just pulled me back into negativity. I was getting all up oh, with sorry. up with new interfaces. <laughs> getting all up in the interface. So I'm very optimistic for next year. Let's talk, do you want to talk good product? Yeah, do you have a good product or, for the end of the year? Oh, one last thing that I, I learned, this is on my own sort of business front. One of my big, I was going through, you know, wins, losses, whatever for the year. And, you know, it's ragged at the end of the year. It always is. I think the big lesson that I learned this year, you can't outsource sales. You can't outsource sales. You just cannot. You have to do it. And because you'll never understand, you'll never have true empathy for the customer, right? And you won't be able to make products that, that make sense if you outsource sales. You always have to, you have to always be talking to to customers. I mean, you have to talk to your audience, but you also have to talk to customers if you're going to have an advertising model. And I, that's why I just think about how crazy it is to outsource those relationships in programmatic advertising. I understand the buy side decides how they want to buy. I just don't understand how you can have any control of a business if you don't have control of distribution one, and then you don't have direct relationships with your customers. That's just that's wild to me to even attempt that. But that was my big takeaway. Personally. I think that makes sense. The other reason why it's so critical, Brian, is your ad products are really new, nuanced. And you're trying to figure out how to integrate a sponsor's message, need for leads into your media products and activations in a way that isn't cookie cutter. And so... It, it really involves the bending of your primary product to accommodate advertising in creative ways. And I think when you're front and center on those discussions, you can do a better job of it. Yeah. So that's the key. Well, so what's your, what's your good product? Well, I sent you guys a link of this company called The Pudding. And The Pudding does... I, thought I got like a 404 page. Well, it's called thepudding.cool. I don't know anything about the company other than they do like the style of kind of information presentation or infographics, sophisticated information kind of interfaces that you sometimes see on the New York Times. And one of the great results of the New York Times having money to invest in technology is that their storytelling is particularly when they use interactive elements or they blend that into sort of gaming interfaces is really fun. I mean, and that ranges from kind of pure gaming. Like I play Connections every day, and that is the first thing I do when I open my Times app up. To just rich combination of images, video, and and text in in storytelling, and that's what the pudding does. That's not my good product. My good product is last week. Alex said to him, he said, and we got a react couple reactions to this. 
he talked about in our little mini episode, he talked about this kind of transcendent existential moment he had sitting in traffic talking to the chat GPT, using the chat GPT chat interface. Going back and forth, he was trying to figure out what the ending should be for his game. So he had this discussion sitting in traffic with LLM. And he said it was like incredible because because it was audio and chat. He didn't formulate his his questions or statements precisely. And there was an organic back and forth and all that. So I was inspired by that. And last week I was on my way to a meeting and I was walking in Brooklyn and I had my headphones on. And I was interested in particular around the future of the SERP. And I started having a conversation with ChatGPT about what happens to Google, the pressure for them to monetize, what the new interfaces look like, who their competitors will be, all of that. And I would say I had a conversation that was 80% of the way to like someone I would have like a really good human interaction. And Did that give you pause at all? I, I Maybe I'm becoming old, but like I see all the statistics of loneliness and the fact that people don't have friends anymore, don't see people. And I don't know if they like, I, did you see the AI girlfriend? I shared that in the, yeah, in the chat. Yeah. Like, I, of course, the, of course, it's very stereotypical. That would be one of the first applications. Does it give me pause? I mean, I looked at it as a tool where I could make better use of my time and think through something in the place that I most like thinking through things, which is walking, and that I could actually have the benefit of a huge reference pool to inform that conversation, which is what the LLM brings to it. And then all of that, that entire conversation would be transcribed and I could grab it off my phone when I got home. Like, that's Okay, that cool. sounds fine. But I think, I- but it is that when this replaces, like, I understand why AI came about in a certain, within this milieu. Because humans are friction, they're a pain in the ass. They're just, they're, they're a pain. I'm, I'm going to some plant store, I'm in like a dispute with a plant store. <laughs> they, they went, like, why, why do I want this? Why do I want this in my life? It would be very easy for me to just avoid the Mimo Garden Center plant war that's going on. But I think that there's a risk that it, it accelerates an already, a situation where people are already sort of retreating within their own personal bubbles to an alarming degree. And it's showing up in all of the statistics with the with mental health issues, with loneliness, and just with a lack of empathy, I feel like, for, for other human beings. And I understand how that would... Uh, I, I would think that that would accelerate as you have less interactions, whether just casually or not. I'm not arguing against being able to work through the search engine result page <laughs> with a robot. That's fine. The AI girlfriend stuff is where it gets a little scary for me. <laughs> yeah. And you start with the SERPs, next thing you know, you're dating a robot. I don't know. <laughs> well, I worry... Having an affair with a I robot. worry less about <laughs> those things. If a person can be happy with an AI girlfriend, like, good on them. And that's great. And no, no. Well, just yeah. let me finish. Let me finish. I think that the how it impacts how we deal with real humans and how it changes, as you said, the sort of empathy equation, that worries me for sure. I think the bigger issue right now around mental health is that coming out of COVID, we've gone through so much change that it's impossible to keep up with. If you're a young person, you can't afford a house. And there's a tremendous amount of economic insecurity. 
And I think all of that is more worrisome than me having a conversation with a chatbot. And so young people aren't doing better than their parents. If you have the fortune or misfortune to live in a coastal, expensive coastal city like I do, your kids have choices about that are constrained by just the economics of living in cities like this. I think a lot of people don't feel like they have any economic security. And I think there's a lot. And then you add to that conflicts in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. And it's a time of great anxiety, great anxiety, add climate in, add political situation in the US. And so I worry more about that and its impact on us physically and mentally than I do a chatbot. And I think that what happens when you get but things they're, they're like related. Chat, uh, they're related. new technologies that do stuff like that, they drive you, they, they, they talk to you, all that stuff. People react and then they go, there's always a pendulum swing where we now have renewed interest in book circles or whatever, like human, human-centered interaction without technology. So I feel like we correct for, is, for that what, is that what we're calling friendships these days? Human-centered <laughs> interactions and not technology. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I appreciate this podcast because I get to talk to you, Brian, and it's one of the great joys of my week always. Yeah, it's been a fun part of this. You know, the lack of monetization is disappointing, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah. If two things happened, so if three, Alex suggested that we do this podcast, you and I were like, uh, da, da, blah, blah, blah. We did it. it. We all got to know one another a lot better. And I'm very grateful for that. I think it forces you to open your eyes during the week and really try to understand the world. I'm grateful for that. If it enriches anybody else's life because we've given them an idea or a point of view or a new way of thinking about things, that's great. All of that makes it worthwhile, I think. Oh, I agree. I hear from people about this all the time. So do send in your feedback. My email is brian at, at therebooting.com. You want a PVA address? I could get you a PVA address. <laughs> no, I want to keep my, my brand going. I'm actually, I'm switching platforms. I'm switching from Substack to Ghost. They're like an open source, kind of like WordPress, but hipster. For email, hipster WordPress. <laughs> when does that happen? When's the cutover? We're just doing it like now. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right. All right, this is fun. What an episode.